Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And today's hashtag Jill's Pin is a television set that says true crime all the time. And it seemed appropriate for our upcoming conversation, which will no doubt include some of Trump's recent activities, but our all guest- on TV. Yes. Our guest today is doing something that you don't see many Democrats doing, and that is going on Fox News and pushing back against right-wing narratives with facts and logic. And she's very good at it, too, as a daily panelist on The Five, where she is the only Democrat on the panel composed of four other Republicans. So today we're going to ask her how she does it and whether people in the Fox audience listen to her and can change their minds. And if you've never heard of The Five, it's a very different approach than you would ever think Fox News would take. Our guest today is Jessica Tarlov. She is the co-host on Fox's most watched program, The Five, and it includes other uh, hosts, Jesse Walters, Janine Pirro, Greg Gutfield, and others. She also offers analysis across the network on other shows and serves as vice president of research and consumer insight for Bustle Digital Group, where she helps them create messages that will resonate with people. She has a quantitative background, which is quite interesting. And she um, does a lot of really interesting things. So we're looking forward to talking to her. She worked for Boris Johnson very early in his career um, when he was mayor. and. We want to ask her about all of these things. We're very happy to welcome Jessica. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's fabulous. So you have such a fascinating life story, and and we want to start by actually learning more about you. Um, You went to Bryn Mawr for undergrad. First, what did you study there? Were you always interested in politics? Um, I was always interested. I was an international history major, um, more on the political side, I guess, to history and did a thesis about the role of um, travel narratives in the colonial times, like the adventurers who would go out and then come back and write these stories about brave new worlds and how they would get people to actually get on boats to go and do that. So always kind of interested in the realm of persuasion, I guess you would say. Um, And then I graduated and went on to do a couple of master's degrees at the London School of Economics. And that's when I got into public policy um, and specifically focusing on uh, quantitative methods to be able to kind of tell policy stories, which led me into my PhD. So I guess so, um, kind of in like in the realm, in the conversation with politics, um, but not- What does quantitative mean? I, that doesn't- Oh, tell- um, so my my PhD topic, um, which was focusing on how particular kinds of scandals affect politicians' reelection rates, was a statistical model that I created. So like all the components of someone's background, like, you know, where they went to school, what race they were, you know, what percentage they won their reelection rate by, and then also what category of scandal they fit into, what they committed, if it was a financial crime, a sex crime, et cetera. And then it would predict whether they would get reelected or okay. not. And so I- now we have a <laughs> crime, a sex crime, a democracy crime. Yeah. How does yeah. how does your um, PhD <laughs> inform? I, I wasn't going to ask this. You opened the door. How yeah. does PhD tell us what's going to happen in 2024's election? Well, 
I wish that I had a better answer. So actually, my PhD was UK focused because there weren't enough US scandals to focus on to make it a large scale crime. It all started with this interest in the Clinton era and kind of what he could have said. Obviously, the truth would have helped, but you know what he could, could have said to have not ended up um, in that level of hot water. Then we needed a bigger sample set, so it was UK focused. Um, but in the US, re-election rates tend to be pretty decent, um, not nearly as high as in the UK, but the fact that Trump isn't an incumbent and has been rejected so many times, um, including those people that he's also been endorsing, um, I feel decent about the Democrats' chances there. But I mean, I know the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of conversation about how it's perfectly feasible that he ends up winning again, um, serving from jail, I guess, or whatever that would look like. And I could see that happening too. Uh, people are just so dug in um, in what they think. It's so interesting to think about. Um, I, I just have to answer one thing you said, which because I've looked at some of the Bill Clinton stuff. And yeah. one of my best friends was the um, head of the Kinsey Foundation in, in, in Indiana. And saying I did not have sex with that woman actually is people younger than me consider oral sex, not sex. And so to them, that is a true statement. It isn't. So it's just, it's sort of an interesting thing. But, um, it, I'm also reading Barb McQuaid, one of my sisters-in-law yeah. is writing a book and it talks about what are the tactics of dictators and why do people fall for it and why do they dig in? And what you mentioned is why they dig in is they really take it personally if you try to present them with facts that counter what they already believe. And so they dig in to stick with it. But anyway, well, that's, it's good to hear. And you're going to have lots to say based on your PhD, I would say. Uh, yeah. So and then, a good, a good background, I guess, uh, to getting yeah. into this, uh, this crazy mixed up world here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And who would have thought that it wasn't my Watergate experience that would be so relevant to Donald Trump, but my organized crime no. racketeering <laughs> and stuff. I mean, exactly. it, really, it's only recently that we're seeing how much he sounds like a mob boss. But um, let's go back to you. And, and when you worked for Boris Johnson, which I find fascinating, mm -hmm. um, talk about what you did for him. And I, I assume that's when you were at London School of Economics. Yeah. So um I finished up the first draft of my PhD, and then you have months for revisions. And so I had the opportunity to work over there and manage to get a job on his mayoral reelection. So this is pre-Brexit, oh, yeah. all of that. And um, totally. I mean, this was eons ago. So this is 2012. And he was running for reelection against a guy named Ken Livingston, who was the mayor of London before that. And Ken Livingston is part of that super anti-Semitic um, strand of the Labor Party over there with Jeremy Corbyn. And I'm Jewish. And the two girls that I worked with, we ran the social media and kind of opposition research team for Boris Johnson, um, all American girls, and um, just felt like, you know, liberals at home, but a conservative there is much different and that we didn't want someone anti-Semitic getting back into office. So went to work for him. Um, but a funny aside that loops back to my PhD is that Boris Johnson was in my sample set for my PhD, having committed adultery, you know, many, many times in his life. Um, so that was like a funny aside to the whole thing. 
My gosh. And did he know you were in that he was in your PhD sample when he hired you? The campaign manager found out about halfway through um, and everyone thought it was very funny. He's not one to think something like that uh, is a big deal whatsoever. And frankly, his scandals have always helped him um, a little bit like Trump. I think that they've gone in very different directions, obviously, um, since then. But the appeal, the kind of cultish appeal and like when something that you would typically think would be bad for him would happen and he'd get a bump in the polls. That was something in 2016 that I was always surprised about with Trump, where you think like, oh, he's got to be done now. And then the support was just consolidating. Wow. So there's very big similarities with Boris Johnson and Donald Trump uh, in, terms of yeah. adult, in terms of bumps in their okay. yes. Yeah. Hey. Um, yeah. They well, both like the ladies. Well, I mean, so we now see you in media, obviously, but how did you go from your time in London to now on, on kind of our, our TV screens, especially at Fox News? Yeah, so my old boss, um, before I went to, well, during when I went to Fox, and then I have a different main job now, which I'll talk about too. Um, I worked for Bill Clinton's pollster, actually, former pollster, a guy named Doug Schoen. Um, who was Mayor Bloomberg's pollster. So I got hired out of my PhD to go work for Doug. And Doug was a Fox News contributor for about 15 years. And after I'd been working for him for a couple of years, he started really encouraging me to do media just to help build my own personal brand, which is what you want in a boss, right? Someone who's like, you need to get out there and speak for yourself. Um, and also just to build your public speaking skills, because there's really nothing more important that you can have, whatever kind of path you go along. Um, so I started doing Fox in 2015, just showing up on various shows, kind of like you're doing right now, Victor, which has been so exciting to see you around there. And it was just a really good fit, um, I think, between me and the network and everyone got along. Um, and then I got hired there after the 2016 election and the rest is cable news history, I guess. <laughs> Fascinating. And, and we're, of course, particularly interested in your experience at Fox because you speak from a different perspective than yeah. maybe anyone else at Fox. Um, maybe there's someone, but I certainly don't know who it is. Sure. Um, so we'd be very curious about what your experience has been like and um, just in terms of the politics. And then we can also talk about some of the stuff like whether you ever experienced any of the um, kinds of treatment that have been detailed in multiple stories, Gretchen Carlson, Abby Grossberg, uh, among them. But first talk uh, about the politics side of it. Yeah, um, so obviously I'm an opposition viewpoint. There are other, are other liberals there. Like I'm sure you know Juan Williams, who's been at the network for decades. Um, and came over from NPR. Um, people like Marie Harf, who was John Kerry's spokesperson at the State Department. Um, but of course, you know, it is more conservative leaning, um, often outnumbered. Um, so the show that I co-host, I share the liberal seat with Harold Ford Jr., who was a congressman um, from Tennessee. And, you know, it's one liberal and then four conservatives, but different kinds of conservatives, like a couple who really like Trump, then Dana Perino, who was George Bush's press secretary, um, and Greg Gottfeld, who's much more libertarian. So there's a mix of perspectives. Um, but I've 
absolutely loved it. It's challenging. Um, it's a lot of fun. I often think about, you know, especially as we get into an era of such close elections like 2016, obviously we know how few votes decided that. We know how few votes decided the 2020 election as well. Um, I really relish the opportunity to be talking to an audience that doesn't necessarily agree with me. Um, there are persuadables still out there. We know independents are the ones that are actually tilting the election in one way or another. Um, and like, if we look at 2020, for instance, it's Georgia and Arizona, right, that are really deciding it, white suburban women. And a lot of them are watching Fox News. So I just think it's an amazing thing to be able to connect with them directly um, and to be part of a conversation actually that reflects the country. You know, this is what it's like. We all have people in our families that don't necessarily have our political views. Um, kitchen tables don't all look like mine. Certainly I come from a family of liberals. I married someone who has some Trump supporters in his family. It's just like, you know, what happened? So I kind of, I think that it's that, it's being able to model that, that makes the show really resonate and connect. And um, the show that I'm on, The Five, has been the number one show on cable news for well over a year now. And people just really love the fact that it has, I think, a natural dynamic to it where you feel like, oh, I get this. Even though she might not be my represent my politics or whatever, I can personally really like her. I can take a moment and listen to her, that kind of stuff. I, I Are there actually persuadables that listen to Fox? Yeah, so 20% um, of the viewership of the five are Democrats um, and double digits of independents. I'm, I'm not going to say it's a majority, um, but it's definitely out there. Um, and if you look at, you know, big events like election coverage and things like that, people are tuning in um, to Fox to see what's going on, you know, and I think it's uh, awesome to be part of that. And it really, it keeps you sharp. Um, it keeps you paying attention. And I think that you can, I'm not going to say that I thought that Donald Trump was going to win in 2016. Um, but you can see, I feel the tea leaves of what's coming a bit better when you're exposed to people who are on the ground or part of a political movement that you're not naturally part of. I will say, if, if you asked me five years ago whether I would ever be on the network, I probably would have said no. But I, I will say, I mean, hearing you talk about the fact that there might be persuadables is comforting, knowing that maybe me being on the network or you being on the network might be able to reach someone. Um, but can you talk a little bit about your um, experience, like any personal treatment you've received uh, at the network by being, you know, a Democrat or by being, you know, an opposition um, voice? Yeah, it's a it's not salacious at all. I've had a really great experience at the network. I think, you know, obviously things that have been settled legally, I have no comment on that. That's how those things uh, should have played out. Um, but I have been treated exceptionally well. I was promoted and giving a, given a co-host role while I was um, pregnant and heading into maternity leave, which is something that women are not often given. Like, you know, go enjoy your baby and have a raise. It's something that you really dream about, especially on TV where there are so many nerves about being able to be replaced, for instance, or, you know, it's not fun gaining 40 pounds in front of millions of people, but yeah, you, you have to do it. Um, so I've had a really good experience. I've become close friends um, with a lot of people at the network. And I mean, I'm sure you know this, Jill, from having been around a long time, you know, people who work in entertainment are people who work in entertainment, right? The people who work at these organizations and people move around all the time. Like some of MSNBC's best producers came from Fox and vice versa. 
Um, So it's been a climate that I think has really helped me grow. And I've made a lot of really good friends. And I think that they are very aware of how important my voice is and the Democrats' voices of the people who show up, because that's what makes the product interesting to a viewer, right? They want to show up. I mean, there are some people who don't want to see it, right? Like they just want to have a conversation in their bubble, of course. Um, But it's the back and forth that makes it really interesting. And I think likewise that a good amount of viewers, even if they're not going to come over and suddenly become, you know, Joe Biden truthers or whatever it is that you want to see an accurate portrayal of what's going on in the opposition party. Um, Like I think what's going on with RFK Jr. is a really interesting example of that. Like if you talk to some Republicans in isolation, like they think he's great. It doesn't make any sense to them why Democrats would be rejecting, you know, he's a Kennedy. Um, He's very well-spoken. He has this, you know, great track record as an environmental lawyer. And then I get the opportunity to explain (laughs) to people how RFK Jr. is a Trojan horse um, coming over to the Democratic side um, and really just represents the interests of Joe Rogan. And uh, and people like that. So I don't know. I I I've had a great experience. It sounds fascinating. Of course, you know, so many people, including me, see Fox as the network that has fake news that lies Mm -hmm. and knows that it's lying as proven in the Dominion lawsuit and probably will be again in the Smartmatic lawsuit where they admit we lied and we knew we lied. And if they hadn't admitted it, it would have been proven. So it's it's interesting that there is you as a truth teller. And let's move into that sort of issue of how you are approaching this, because that's a seriously important role. If you can get through even a teeny, teeny percentage of the people who are listening to Fox and make them go, oh, that's an interesting point. Um, I know I've tried talking to Trumpers and it isn't successful because they believe certain facts that simply are not supported by any evidence. And when you say, but you know about the cyber ninjas in Arizona, you know about the 60 lawsuits, they go, well, I don't believe any of that. Right. How do you continue the argument? How do you continue to make a point in order to get those facts across? And those are skills that everyone should have these days. Um, I think that it's important to just not lose faith in the process, um, because we do know from how what Trump has managed to accomplish that it's a game of repetition, right? He's just drilled these things into people's minds, and they're now true believers because they've heard uh, fake election, fake news, what, whatever it is that many times. Um, so continuing to repeat yourself, and I think also or at least this is my hope, I might be deluding myself, but the fact that the viewers have known me for so long that they know my background and at least think that I'm, you know, a a smart gal um, who knows what she's talking about, that it makes you think she can't be making this up completely, right? That there can be a partisan spin on it, especially when you're talking about something that's more of a gray area, right? If you're talking about personal affairs of the Biden family, for instance, or something like that. That's not the same thing as, oh, no, actually, this is what the numbers are, right? Like, this is what's actually going on in terms of the economy. Um, But I also think that 
getting the message out has been so enhanced by what goes on on social media. Like I personally, I have Twitter or X, I guess I'm supposed to call it now. Um, I don't have TikTok. Um, I'm what very elder, uh, elder millennial that way. Um, no, no Instagram. I just, when social media started, I thought it would be just like this dark rabbit hole for me. And I would be looking at my high school boyfriend, you know, for the rest of my life. And it was just like <laughs> a bad idea. Um, but I see because friends send it to me and gets passed around, you know, how much of the cable news clip makes it onto these other mediums and TikTok especially does such fun things like setting a conversation that I was having about the Mar-a-Lago indictments to fun music and things like that. And it really makes what's going on in the cable news world accessible for younger people. And obviously that's, you know, a huge part of what Victor is doing um, and his cohort in being able to, to spread the importance of what's happening on these kind of like higher levels of politics and in more traditional media for other people. And I think, honestly, it's a bit of a disservice. Some, I shouldn't say sometimes when people discount forms of media that they don't like, or they're not comfortable with, that doesn't stop it from being important to other people. Like I meet folks all the time who don't think that Fox has liberals on like constantly, yeah. or I even see if um, someone clips a segment from the five, for instance, like if I'm talking about Bidenomics or I'm talking about the Dobbs decision or whatever it is. And in the comments, I'll look and people will say like, who is this woman? She's about to be fired. And then someone will say, she's been on the network since the 2016 elections. Like this isn't a new phenomenon. She's this person and she's a liberal there. You know, the perception is that Fox isn't having those conversations and, it, and it's not true. Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the things that I've been seeing, too, is like, you know, you say something on Fox that is truthful and people think that they will never have you back on the network again when it seems, I mean, they've been doing this for a long time. But in the same vein of like kind of getting facts out there and how to communicate effectively, you know, we were talking about this the other day via DM and that's how to get your message across succinctly, especially at a place like Fox when you have, I mean, for instance, I, I was watching a clip of yours when you were with um, Sean Hannity. I mean, he cut you off basically instantly. So yeah. can you share the tip that you told me? Because I think it's so worth sharing for anyone who wants to go on TV, but also just be effective communicator in any form. Yeah. Well, I like to say that Sean cuts me out out of love. I'm always like, you know, I was right. And that's why you did it. Um, I, I believe what I was telling you to do is to just be prepared with the points that you have to hit and with your kind of opening sentence, the thing that you have to make sure that you get to, and it really centers the rest of your commentary. So, I mean, it's tough in a back and forth on cable news. Obviously, someone has just said something else. So you might get asked the question in a different way. But to really remember the things that you know the audience has to know from you because they're not going to get it somewhere else um, and make sure that you can convey that and as succinctly as possible. I've thought so much about what extra words do in terms of detracting from your message and not just the usual millennial likes and ums and things. And I, I do have the vocal fry going, um, but you know, what is extraneous and what's not. And I think, especially in the Trump era, because it's so easy to get in the mud about things and to be petty, I guess, and to make a, you know, a stupid comment if you want like a throwaway about how particularly orange he was, or, Oh, for instance, um, at the, Mar-a-Lago indictment, the sketch artist drew him as like a skinny buff guy. I don't know if you guys noticed this. <laughs> and we were talking about it because it's, I mean, I 
I trust his doctors. I, I don't want anyone to be in any sort of physical trouble. But like Donald Trump's not in great shape, right? We've all objectively seen him and the sketch artist did this amazing job and we're chatting about it on, on air. And then I said out loud, I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to be distracted here. And then like, I have to go into the thing that I actually want to talk about. Because if you spend all day, it's fun. You know, like Joe Biden's on the beach. Well, would I like it if my husband looked like that when he was 80? Definitely. You know, that kind of stuff. And then you lose your moment where you have 3 million people that are paying attention to what you're saying. Have you found humor helps at all? I mean, like, I think I'm funny. Yeah, I think it does. Um, I also think that the personal relationships between the hosts matter so much, like particularly with Greg Gottfeld and Jesse Waters, who are, um, Greg's an original host of The Five. He's been there since the beginning and Jesse joined, I think five or six years ago. And we've always had a great relationship and really kind of like pick on each other. Greg does this bit where he starts what he's talking about. He says, you know, in the green room, Jessica was telling me that um, Kevin McCarthy is definitely one of the best speakers of the house in American history. And so you can like play a little when you start um, and then get into kind of the seriousness of it. But the viewers at home love to know that we actually love each other or at least really like each other, you know, and that it's part of this family, this weird family. Um, so I want to know if you really said that. And no, I've said none of the things that Greg said <laughs> that I said. Uh, Great no, I, think, I think he's actually quite embarrassing. But, um, you know, you come after Nancy Pelosi and anyone is going to look pretty bad, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's true. I just, I mean, it, it's possible that you said that and, no, it's highly unlikely that I would ever see that. Um, like, Victor, I thought this was a good idea, but we're going to cancel this podcast and we'll book a new, <laughs> a new guest right away. No, not any of that. But I think that people are really starved for a friendlier time in politics where, you know, I know so many people of my parents' generation who, like, got married and didn't really talk about politics. It's now so central to the dating process, everything you talk about with friends, not like the whole night, but it's impossible to sit down with a friend with the gravity of what's going on right now without saying, oh, can you believe X thing about the Dobbs ruling or the migrant crisis or an indictment or whatever it is. Um, And I think a bit of collegiality goes really far um, with people at home who are so isolated also in a COVID and post COVID world. Um, and the cable news audience is also older across all three of the networks yeah. um, and are less likely to be out hanging with a ton of people all the time. Well, you're exactly correct on saying that you cannot avoid political conversations now where democracy is at stake and yeah. where false news. I mean, t- today is the vote in Ohio. Yep. Hopefully people are going out and voting no. And it's not even just because of abortion, which will be the consequence of this vote on whether or not you can have a majority determine an amendment to the constitution or whether you have to have 60%. But it is that 60% that would make it not democracy as we know it. And so mm-hmm. whatever the issue is, and, and it could go against the liberal you know, people who are supporting the eventual vote on the abortion, it could end up being that you only need 51% to do something that we consider horrible in terms of democracy. And it is important to learn from you how to have these conversations with people who were your friends 
but have taken for some reason or another into this conspiracy theories. Um, and that's where I've failed in having conversations because they don't deal with facts. They just say, well, he says, and he, and as you pointed out, he says it repeatedly and then it right. becomes a, a clear, um, it, it's the technique of all authoritarians from, you know, Mussolini and Hitler. They just say it loud, they say it often, and then people accept it. And so I'm, I'm happy to hear, I mean, I'm, I have a whole new perspective and admiration for your doing what you're doing by knowing that Fox listeners are hearing your message and that you're getting it across to them in a way that, that is, um, you know, is, is important. But is it surprising to you that so many of the listeners really believe the stuff that has no factual foundation and continues to support Trump? What do you account for that by? Um, well, I think that this started a long, long time ago. I, I think Barack Obama's election shattered the country. Um, and then that became visible really in 2015, 2016 with the Republican primary. Um, so I think that Trump is more symptom than cause. Um, he's obviously resonating with a lot of people who feel whatever that great replacement theory thing is. I don't really, I don't try to spend too much time getting in the weeds um, with those kinds of conspiracy theories, but the idea um, that whites are being pushed out um, and replaced, et cetera. Um, so I tend to feel that there are no kind of lost causes in terms of a humanity point of view. Um, I think what happened with the East Palestine train wreck is a great example of that, how there was all this conversation about how the Biden administration, for instance, wouldn't care because it was 5,000 white Trump supporters who ended up, you know, in this utter disaster. And then as the facts trickled out, you had Governor DeWine, um, the local representative, all saying the Biden administration has done absolutely everything that they were supposed to do. Um, and just continuing to promote those kinds of realities. I think that's something that Chris Christie, frankly, is doing really well. I am one of those Democrats that is thrilled to see Chris Christie out there defending his hug after Sandy Hook and talking about what it means to be a bipartisan governor. You know, the guy in a, in a deep blue state getting reelected with 60% of the vote. Um, that's somebody who is a man of our times. Um, Obviously, I know that he's not going to get the nomination. I'm thrilled that he's going to be on the debate stage. Um, but I think that he's a very good example as well, of what, as well of how you continue to talk to people who don't agree with you, but you always treat them with humanity. And I think with a lot of the issues that are really hot button right now, especially abortion, like I've had so many debates with people on the abortion issue who are religious. And I always say, I will never win this debate with you. Like your belief is rooted in something so far bigger than anything that we can get out over seven minutes on cable news. But I would like to talk to you about the science of this. I would like to talk to you about public opinion. I would like to talk to you about the examples. And now, I mean, I'm sure you saw in the past few days, the harrowing testimony of these women in Texas who have been forced to go into sepsis can't have more children, um, whatever it is because of the restrictions. And you just meet them where they are. And I think that that's the most important thing you can do that at least people, if they walk away from the conversation and they think that you're completely out of your mind, they know that you actually care about them. 
It's so important. And, you know, because this is an intergenerational show shortened to yeah, I. Which, by the way, I think is so awesome. Like, it's so great that you guys do this. I mean, we met partly because we, we, we there weren't many young people who agreed with someone as old as Jill um, at back at the time when <laughs> Biden was running uh, to become uh, the nominee for yeah. president. I mean, there, there just weren't many young people who were on board that train, but I was one of them because I wanted to see, you know, an era where at least we could return to civility and, and bipartisanship. Um, but and that's my generation where we had bipartisanship, where it was fact-based we debated policy, not facts. Right. And so Victor is an old soul, He's young, <laughs> yeah. but he really, he gets all that. So it's, it's important to have someone like you on Fox who can take that role and do the debating that needs to be done. And, and let's talk a little bit more about how you got these debate skills because you're, you're good at it. And oh, thank you. something yeah. that people could learn from. So talk about yeah. that. Um. Well, I think it was really on the go kind of stuff and doing it a lot. And I would encourage anyone who is interested in building their public speaking skills, take whatever interview that you can get. I mean, I know Alex Jones isn't on air anymore, so that's not like don't go on Alex Jones's show if he ever gets one again. But um, show up in uncomfortable places and just always be armed with facts. And that's why I kind of always start. Um, though you guys took me there right away with my background, which is in data and hard science. And I think that that's really important, especially for women, because there's so many converse, you know, is, is this your feelings? Are your feelings telling you that? And you're like, no, actually, the numbers are telling me this. I also happen to feel the same way that the numbers are reflecting. Um, but having something that no one can take away from you, which I really feel are these is the data. Um, is something that's totally crucial to it. Um, what I was just talking about with the dose of humanity and treating people with kindness and generosity, even people who are really badgering you. And I think that that's something that has shifted that I think that there used to be more like rah, rah, you know, dunking on liberal, whatever the terms are for all of this, um, you know, just going at someone and hammering and hammering and hammering. And now people are more interested in the nuances of the conversation. Um, and at least looking for the little bit of tidbits that you can pull from either side, which is and 40% of the electorate identifies as an independent. When they get in the voting booth, they go one way or the other. And that's usually on the basis of an issue, like whether they're pro-choice or not. Like that's my personal line in the sand. Like if someone isn't pro-choice, I'm not voting for them. That's, you know, that's just how it works. And most people do have a line like that. Um, so appealing to the human side of things, a lot of, um, I totally take your point. I really understand where you're coming from. I used to do a presentation for my other job. So I'm the head of research at a digital media company called BDG Media. We have 11 websites. Um, we're the largest millennial female lifestyle publisher in the country. And so I'm constantly doing survey work of Gen Z and millennial women, mostly some men, but about you know what they're into, how they're feeling, how brands can better connect with them. And one of the presentations that I used to give was about persuasion and great storytelling, which I think is what we do across our publications. And then also what I try to do at Fox to weave a little tidbit or a question that you might think is so small, but is actually part of this larger conversation that's going on about how people feel about personal freedoms or they feel about the future of you know climate change and what's going to happen with the environment. And 
a crucial piece of that is just always acknowledging that the other person has a valid point of view and say, because for the people who believe in what we see as an alternate universe, that is valid for them. And I think that's how we get this terrible, you know, coastal reputation, frankly, what they hung around Hillary's neck, exceptionally unfairly. I I thought Hillary was, I mean, most of the ex-presidents have even said it, that she would have been the most qualified president um, in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Um, But she got branded a latte drinking New Yorker who didn't under, didn't go to Wisconsin. Like how many times do I have to hear she didn't go to Wisconsin, right? Or the um, of deplorables. Yeah, or that. Right, which frankly turned out to be true. You know, yes. all these things yes. <laughs> turned out to be true. Um, it is a, it's amazing to see the old clips of the debates when she called Trump right. out on everything. Right. This is what's going to happen. Then this is what's going to happen. And this is what's going to happen. Um, and it's interesting because some blend of Bill and Hillary Clinton is the perfect politician, right? Like Bill Clinton gets it right like he knows how to connect like i i met, i've met him a few times through my old boss um who was his pollster and, you know you just you kind of melt right when you're around him which obviously was a bit of his downfall as well um but you know his human capacity his charisma and the way that he connects which i, I would say biden also has a heavy dose of that he's not He's not a slick willy, but, and Hillary's acumen for the game makes yeah, the perfect Hillary, thing. Hillary in a small group, in a one-on-one, has all of the charisma and kindness yep. and graciousness that any of those have. Unfortunately, in front of a big crowd on a, on a television set, anything with a microphone, she doesn't come across the same way. And if she did, she would have been president. No question. No question. But I, I mean, I agree with you. I've had, you know, the pleasure of being able to be in a small group setting with her. Um, but I, I take the tact that I don't really, I don't think the country is ready for a female president. Um, personally, I don't know who she is that will shatter that feeling. I tend to think it's it's feasible that it might be a Republican woman um, that is able to do it. And Nikki Haley is not uh, what we all thought that she was after Charlottesville. Um, but I think so much is kind of embedded in us. Um, and that's what I was talking about with the Obama victories that a lot of people I think who didn't imagine, even if they didn't support him and they could recognize um, how insanely good he was as a communicator and what a kind of beacon of hope he was. And I lived in the UK when he got elected. Uh, London was as excited about this election as they were in DC and all over the country. But I think that people came to realize that they weren't ready for what a black president meant um, and everything that came with that. And I don't know if we're going to have progress again um, for quite some time. You know, when I started practicing law, I was one of 4% of all lawyers for women. And you would think that now, 50 years later, where that isn't, it's no longer 4%, that we could move on and forget all the stereotypes and start accepting people for their skills, for who they are, what they do, uh, in the same way, you know, that we say it's, you know, the content of your character, not the color of your skin. It's not my gender that defines who I am or what kind of lawyer or 
commentator I am. And I'm really, it's, I'm hoping that we can move on to be ready for whoever the most qualified candidate is. I don't know. You may be right that we're not ready yet, but I look forward to that day. That's all I can say. I think we all do. You know, you mentioned um, your other position um, as director of research for Bustle, and, and you mentioned that it tries to target Gen Zers and millennials. And I think there's a lot of conversation right now about how we can reach that group of young voters, especially with President Biden um, as the hopefully the Democratic nominee. Um, if I can pick your brains a little, what, what, what do you think resonates with that generation, with young people? And how do you think President Biden and kind of, I guess, people who are on TV can reach that generation if, if, if able to? I think it helps certainly when younger people are showing up. Um, and that's what I told you when we first started talking. You know, if you have a bunch of like six-year-old white guys telling Gen Zers, like, this is the guy for you. It's not as impactful, obviously, as hearing it um, from someone as part of the same cohort. Um, So just showing up and telling those stories, but also being honest about the fact that it's not a perfect package. Like, I don't know why people think politicians have to be everything. It's completely impossible for you to be, oh, he's Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden wrapped in one. What is that? It's completely impossible. You have a Democratic Socialist you have a moderate establishment Democrat, they're not going to be the same, but they can learn from each other and they can do as much as they can. Um, so I think just highlighting the progress, I, I worry and I, I pay a lot of attention, obviously, to the Democratic Party's messaging. I think that a lot of the amazing things the Biden administration has done has gotten lost um, yeah. in the kind of eco sound chamber of whatever this is, you know, people attacking him about his climate agenda. And then you're like, excuse me, could I tell you what actually happened in the Inflation Reduction Act or what's happening in the Infrastructure Act? Um, So making sure that those kinds of stories get amplified, but also, you know, to a point that you are so, you know, adept and continually keep talking about, Jill, the threat of what's on the other side of this. Uh, You know, I have Gen Z's working for me who are fantastic and they show up to vote, but kind of begrudgingly because they don't feel excited by what's going on. And you have to really impress upon people. If it's not this, then it's this. And that's the fallacy of no labels, any kind of third party conversation, whatever is going on with our page. I mean, Cornell West who just like, please pay your child support and get off my TV. <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, every election we say like the stakes have never been higher um, and every election I feel like it's genuinely true. So amplifying it and then listening to people like um, you were on the Biden train from the get go, which is rare for someone of your age, Victor. But I, I remember I'm very close with someone named Antoine Seawright, who's the top advisor to Jim Clyburn and the Congressional Black Caucus. And he's based in South Carolina. And I always go to him and I'm like, tell me what's actually going on with Democratic voters. Because I live here in Manhattan, you know, everyone wants to, you know, still wearing their forward t-shirt and, you know, we're walking around feeling good about what we did for democracy. And I remember at the start of the primary, when everyone was going wild for Elizabeth Warren um, or Kamala, and he was like, it's Biden. And I was like, it's Biden. And he said, it's Biden. But look at the policies. And then look what real Democrats care about. And he'll play in the margins like he did with student loan forgiveness. For instance, you remember at the beginning, Biden was a hard no on that. 
then Jim Clyburn pushed him and said, this is especially important um, for black voters, people who received Pell grants, et cetera. And Joe Biden got there. Um, so I always re try to read the tea leaves and have conversations with people whose frankly vote matters more for them than it does for me. Cause I'm going to be okay. You know, I'm a, I have a great job. Hopefully I have that for as long as possible, but I know my privilege. I know that I will always have access to abortion. If that's what I need, I can survive high taxes and things like that. But talk to voters where these are all dire consequences. They can't just cross state lines for this or that um, or move somewhere uh, where they actually care about the environment or where their kids are getting school lunches, you know, and things like that. So, so I, I don't know. Follow up because you've mentioned two things that sort of make me think. And, and one is that we need better communicators on the Democratic side and that those communicators have to figure out a way to get the facts because you're right, people don't feel good about the economy, but look at what he's done. Yeah. I mean, all Americans. It's unbelievable how much this president has done. And this is, you know, what, no matter what your point of view is, no matter what your party affiliation is, if you just look at reality and you're right. a data person, you'd have to say, oh my God, this is fantastic. So who are the best Democratic communicators? Who would you like to see on Fox or anywhere talking more and how do we get the Fox audience um, to hear those facts? What's the best way to do those two things? Well, I mean, he shows up and he always does an outstanding job. Uh, I can't call him Secretary Pete. He's always Mayor Pete to me. But, you know, Pete Buttigieg does an exceptional job. Um, Amy Klobuchar is a complete rock star. When I was at the Iowa caucuses, I went to her rally the most amped up were the people at the Amy event. Wow. And it was because she just, she makes sense, right? She's just someone that from a policy perspective makes sense. It's this kind of like middle of the road, liberal aspirations, but grounded in reaction. Minnesota nice, which is the funniest thing. And, you know, she had just run, uh, used that line. Like all three of my ex-boyfriends have donated to my campaign. And I was like, this is the woman, like this is. Um, so I think they're fabulous. Um, Brett Baer, who hosts Special Report and the election coverage, has something called the Common Ground Panel, um, where he has a Democrat and a Republican on together to talk about bipartisan issues. Um, Madeline Dean does it. Um, she talks yeah. about addiction. Um, her son is a survivor of addiction. And like Elizabeth Warren has been on. And Everyone wants to go on. Like that's how hungry even the representatives are on Capitol Hill to be able to have these conversations because, you know, whatever they say in front of a microphone after a Devin Archer deposition or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever crazy thing is, they still have constituents that want to see that you're a normal human being, right? That can have a conversation with someone that you um, share a committee with. So I think that they're fantastic. Um, I think, I mean, in terms of, like accounts that I follow, um, legal Twitter, uh, of course, of which you are a part of. Um, but I love uh, Ryan Goodman, who is the co-editor of Just Security. Wow. I think Andrew Weissman lives near me because I've seen him around a lot. Um, it was so a I really enjoy day. <laughs> What? Loft, you have to go from You have to go to his loft from heaven, as rumored. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember the days when you were so excited when I got my first 10 out of 10. I thought I had made it and that we would also be back in the studio soon. 
Um, so I think that they're great. Um, but there are a lot of legal commentators um, that are on Fox that have done some excellent work, like around the Mar-a-Lago um, documents case. If you listen to Andy McCarthy, who is a, was a former special prosecutor, I think is the correct term. Um, and then is at the National Review. I think his analysis is really important to be listening to. Um, but yeah, I love seeing um, the spokespeople from the Biden administration when they go and do it. I thought Jen Psaki was an incredible press secretary yes. yeah. um, and had a really great balance. And if you think about also like one of the best things about how she ran the press room was her back and forth with Peter Ducey, who is a Fox reporter. And that was one of these things where it can be mutually beneficial to what's going on in the conversation at Fox and also what's going on in the conversation at a CNN or an, an, an MSNBC. And I like to be part of that. Like, I don't think that there's anything lost in being part of a conversation that isn't one-sided. Like uh, Gavin Newsom showing up on Hannity. Yes. I don't know if you saw that, that interview. Brilliant. Oh, of course. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And, I would put him and, on the list of people who are great communicators. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. I love Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado. Um, I wish that he would do more interviews. He was on with Bill Maher um, at the end of last season and just totally blew me away. They were talking about a bill that he signed and he's more libertarian, I would say, than traditional Democrat. But the bill was about um, making sure that parents couldn't narc on other parents for letting their kids play outside without adult supervision. And it seemed like the most obvious thing that like if it's your child you can make a decision if your 10 year old can go you know ride their bike around the cul-de-sac and uh bill maher was pushing him you know well this isn't something that necessarily like jives with a lot of the nanny state thing on you know on the left and he just said well but it's what makes sense and i think that leaders that talk like that are what makes sense uh mitch landrew who was the mayor of new orleans another one i love John Tester, I love Sherrod Brown. Before the primary started, I had really wanted Sherrod Brown to get in. I, I thought his voice is tough, I think, maybe for, um, for the presidency. Um, and I say that as someone with a tough voice. Uh, but I think people like that are just absolutely fantastic. And a lot of these governors, like what Chris Christie's doing, um, talking about how you govern, you know, people of the other side, um, are just huge helps um, for all of us. That is so fascinating. Well, I know we are running short on time, but as, as maybe a last final question, I mean, uh, first, maybe a two-part question. First, on this kind of same kind of side of messaging and, and communications, you know, Democrats have been criticized a lot about not being as effective at messaging compared to Republicans. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for Democrats heading into 2024 about what that message should be and how to counter the Republican messaging? And then just kind of following up on our just previous conversation, advice for young people and people growing up in this age of politics. So in terms of the messaging, um, I think a lot more, which Democrats got this right in 2022 for the midterms where, you know, it was unprecedented good performance um, because they talked about real issues. And having conversations around democracy issues matters to a subset of voters, but they are going to be primarily motivated by whatever's going on in terms of the economy. Um, and it looks like the Dobbs decision is going to be something that has now moved into the echelon of the bread and butter issues. Because um, fundamentally, actually, the right to abortion is an economic issue anyway, um, and it's part of family planning. 
So I think talking about the issues on the ground, and I think Republicans are learning this the hard way. I don't know if you saw there was an article out, I think it was Reuters or the AP, about how Republicans in districts that Biden won are livid at Kevin McCarthy for talking about impeachment all the time because they can't go home to their constituents and talk about some far, you know, uh, an informant who's a Chinese spy who's missing now or, you know, whatever. I I can't keep up with it. Um, But to really hammer the issues that, you know, resonate with voters um, and to talk about Bidenomics, which I think is a really smart and good turn of phrase, but not in a lecturing way to just talk about the positives, but not yell at somebody about the fact that they don't get it right. Like we have 800,000 new manufacturing jobs in the country. That's a huge deal. But you have to talk about it in terms of the plants, right, that are coming, the Microsoft plants or, you know, what we've gone with, we've done with the CHIPS Act, which was bipartisan, like talking about the specifics versus the overarching, like, I can't believe you don't get it. Um, And Jared Bernstein, who uh, is at the White House, is really good at that. And he comes on Fox all the time. Um, So I think that in terms of the messaging and like, don't be mean to people, like, it's just being mean really doesn't work. Um, and advice for younger people, um, know your facts, um, find like-minded and interesting people to chat about this stuff with. And I don't mean like-minded in that they agree with you politically, but that they're interested in the kind of conversations, um, that we're able to have, um, and that hopefully people perceive that I have on Fox, um, make yourself uncomfortable and, don't just be like a clickbait warrior. I've seen so many young people where that has been their downfall that they've either gone over a line and stepped in something and you know made something that isn't a great representation of them or that their work is just kind of blah, right? Like there's this whole industry now around media that isn't necessarily journalism and you don't also it doesn't always translate to votes. So like do the real work for that, which I know obviously you know about, but like get out there and like activist, old school activism, knocking on doors, um, things like that uh, really work. I think that would be my advice. Oh, and you should write stuff. Yes. It's really good. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jessica. This has been a really interesting conversation and I hope everyone will be watching your show because they will learn from that. It's a good way. Maybe it's the introduction to Fox News where it's not all one-sided. So if you're going to start Fox News, start with Jessica's show. That's what you need. Uh Yeah. Like dip your toe in. Um, Slowly. And then you'll find yourself like Gavin Newsom has admitted he's a complete Fox News addict. He watches all of primetime every night. Really? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that helps him be a more effective uh, communicator with that side. Totally. Well, if you just think about everything in the way that your opposition frames right. it, then you don't come off as clunky because we have ideas all the time. I'm like, oh, my God, why doesn't this resonate? And it's like, oh, it's a message just tailor made for people who have exactly the same beliefs as you. Right. right. Um, so, yeah. Good anyway, lesson. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Pleasure. Yeah. Absolutely. Bye. Bye.
Thank you so much for watching this episode of iGen Politics with Jessica Tarlov. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and that if you are going to watch Fox, just like Jill said, you should start by watching The Five. Um, we'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics. Uh, in the meantime, you can subscribe to us wherever you follow your podcast or right here on youtube.com slash Politicon so you don't miss an episode. Thanks again for watching, and we'll see you next week. But remember, you should spend more time watching MSNBC where the facts are real. Yes. Thank you, everyone.